Good morning, Lakeview Church. It is so good to hear that. So good to be back with you. We were gone this last week doing some college visits. We got one more child that is at home with us, and he is a junior in high school, and he's looking for the next steps. And so we were with him uh, doing some college visits, and one of the colleges he happened to visit is the college where our daughter attends which just seemed to be perfect that we got to see her as well and just got to have a great time with her. And, but it is good to be back with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you this morning. Before we do that, I want to do what I do every Sunday when I'm up here. I just want to look right into that camera and just say that for those of you who are joining us online, whether you're watching this live in this moment or on demand sometime later, we are so glad that you're here and we just want to welcome you. We want you to feel a part of our church. We're so glad that you get to join us there. uh, And we just want you to know that you're part of our congregation. We love you. We're praying for you. And uh, we want to encourage you just to continue to engage with us here at Lakeview Church, continue to grow in your faith journey. And for those of you here in the room, can we just welcome those who are joining us online this morning? Now, I want everybody to know, uh, again, I say this a lot, but I want to just say it one more time just to make sure everybody knows. And some of you already know what I'm going to say, and that's good. You're starting to get it. And when everybody gets it, I'll stop saying it. Okay, fair enough. We are an everyday church for everyday people, and we are striving every single day to follow Jesus, live generously, and make a difference every single day. And some of you maybe have some questions about that phrase, and I want to just kind of maybe clarify a couple of things. We say we are an everyday church because we do not believe church is a building, and we do not believe church is an event that takes place on a particular day. We believe that we are the church. And we're not just called to be the church at this location at 1030 on Sunday morning. We are called to be the church every single day, Monday through Saturday and Sunday. We are an everyday church and we are an everyday church for everyday people. And what we mean by that is that you don't have to be a certain kind of person to come to this church. You don't have to have a certain set of beliefs to walk in these doors and be a part of us. You don't have to have a certain level of education or a certain amount of money. You don't have to have a certain kind of status in our community or culture. It's not about what you believe or don't believe. It's not about kind of what you have or don't have, your educational level or lack of education. It's not about your bank account. None of that matters. If you are a person, you are welcome here. We want you to be here with us. And we're, we say it all the time. We are an everyday church for everyday people because it's not a certain kind of person or a special kind of person that gets to come to church here. All of us are welcome. And we want you to feel welcome with us. And we want you to know that we are on a journey. We are committed to growing in this life of faith, following Jesus, living generously, and make a difference in this world. And, and if you're here and you want to just explore what that journey looks like or you want to join us on that journey, we welcome you and we invite you to engage in that. And this is, this is the commitment that I want to make to you, that if you'll engage here, not just, not just show up every once in a great while, but if you will truly, fully engage here with us for the rest of this year, I promise you, you will grow in your faith and God will do things in your life and your life will become different and better 
because of being a part of this community. It's been true for me, and it's been true for other people. I see people nodding right now because it's been true for them. If you just engage and you join with us, God will do something special in your life, and you will begin to experience a different and better life that you didn't even think was possible. So I want to encourage you to engage with us. And if you're here and you've been a part of this community for a while, as Kayla said a few minutes ago, invite your friends. Next Sunday is going to be a great time for you to have your friends here. And I want to just encourage you to do that. We've got more invite cards. You can pick those up at the Welcome Center. And we just want to encourage you to invite your friends this next week. And let's, let's build this community of faith. Not to say, look at how many we have, but because we want our friends to experience everything that God has for them. Amen. Amen. Don's with me. Thank you, Don. Appreciate that. Let's try that one more time. Amen. So good. Today is Palm Sunday. That's why we had kids running around in here with palm branches and needing traffic direction down here at the front. They didn't, weren't sure whether to turn right or left, and, um, but we got it figured out, and it's fine. Uh, but today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that commemorates the beginning of what we call the week of Christ's passion or the week of Christ's suffering, and, and, and it really begins with Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. And he comes riding into Jerusalem on this back of a donkey, and, and it's known as the triumphal entry. It's really a picture that, that the, the world in Jesus' day would have been familiar with. When a king had gone off to a, another land, to another place with his army to, to fight, and to win a victory, and then coming back with all of his commanders and generals and the spoils of war, he would come back into the capital city of his kingdom, and people would come out, and they would cheer, and they would honor the king, and they would celebrate the king, and they would celebrate the victory that had been won, and it would be this wonderful, triumphant entry. That's the picture that we have in Matthew 21, as he writes about Palm Sunday, as he writes about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But it's interesting, while, while the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem kind of speaks to that idea of a king returning from battle, the reality is, is that the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem wasn't about a king returning after winning victory. It was about a king arriving in a city to fight a battle to win the victory. It's a little bit different than we might think about a king returning. This is a king going to battle. And he's not going to battle because it's necessarily what has been prescribed by him from other forces in the world. He is going into battle to lay down his life for humanity. He's giving himself up. He's not actually coming to, to be victorious. He's coming to lay his life down. He's coming to hand himself over to the rulers and the authorities, and they're going to crucify him, and he's going to give his life on the cross. This is not the king that people were expecting, which makes me think maybe we've mistitled this passage. Most Bibles talk about it as the triumphal entry, but maybe it should be called the humble entry. 
Because it's not about a king coming in to say, put me on the throne. I'm now in charge. All of the powers and authorities get out of the way. I am now ruling and reigning. No, Jesus comes in and he's not riding on the back of some regal horse with his commanders and his generals and the spoils of war around him. He comes in riding on the back of a donkey. Or as Shrek says, a donkey. He humbles himself. In Matthew 21, verse 5, it actually says, look at your king. He's coming in. He's riding on the back of a donkey. And here's the thing. It's not even his donkey. He had to borrow it from someone else because he didn't own one. This isn't a triumphal entry. This is a humble entry. And that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the humility of Jesus. Over these weeks leading up to Easter, I've just been spending a lot of time just asking the question, who is Jesus? Now, I grew up in church. I went to a Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. We memorized the Bible. You know, we did all these things when I was a kid, and we didn't memorize the whole Bible. We just memorized some verses from the Bible, but, but, but I knew the story backwards and forwards. I, I've, I've known who Jesus is from really the earliest memories I have. But this year, more than any other year in my life, as I've been coming up to Easter, I've just been asking the question, who is Jesus? What is his character? What is his nature? What's his mission? What's his work? Who is he? And as we walk through today and next Sunday and the Sunday following Easter, I want to just talk to you out of my own spiritual journey, the things I've been kind of thinking about, the things my heart and mind have been circling around over these weeks as I've been thinking about who Jesus is. And I want to start this morning with three important truths that I've been thinking a lot about in these days. The first truth that I think is really, really important for us to understand as we think about this week that we're heading into, the week of Christ's passion and his suffering, is that it is really important for us to know that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. There's a whole bunch of people in our world who will not deny that Jesus was a real person, but when they talk about him, they will just say he was just another human being. They will downplay his divinity. And if you throw away his divinity, if you throw away the fact that he is God, then you don't have anything. Because if Jesus isn't God, then his work means absolutely nothing. Lots of human beings died on crosses and lots of human beings were buried in tombs. You cannot say Jesus was just another human being. We have to start with the fact that Jesus is God. Now, there's some people who will have a higher view of Jesus. They won't go all the way to say that he's God. They'll just say he was a special human, that he lived such a good life. He was such a good teacher. He was such a moral person that God looked down at Jesus and said, that's a good person, one of the best people I can find. I'm going to use him in a special way. And that somehow... God looking down at a really special human being would say, that's a person I can use and I'm gonna make him the savior of the world. But, but again, if Jesus isn't God, it's, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. And I'm gonna show you this this morning as we walk through the scriptures together. 
We have to start here with this reality that Jesus is God. That he is the second person of this divine community that we call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that he existed as God from before the foundations of the world. That he always has been, that he is right now, and he always will be God. Because Jesus is God. Now, this isn't just an idea that the church came up with to make our founder sound better. This is actually revealed to us by the very word of God. In the book of John, which is one of the New Testament books that really writes about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, John begins his writing about Jesus with this important verse. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking this doesn't talk about Jesus, but I promise you, John is using this term, the word, to refer to the person of Jesus. And if you just hang with me, I'll show it to you in a couple of moments. But I just want you to, to just stop on this verse first. In the beginning, the word already existed, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is saying, before we go any further in this story about this person called Jesus, who I'm writing this story to tell you so that you might believe in him and you might find life through him. John says, you gotta understand, he's God. And he's always existed. And he's always been with God. And he is, in fact, God. He has a divine nature. This is critical for us to understand. We must begin with a very high view of Jesus, that Jesus, before anything else was true about him, before he taught the multitudes, before he healed the sick, before he cast out demons, before he died on the cross and was buried in a tomb and raised from the dead, Jesus existed and has always existed as the second person of the divine community. Jesus is God. This means that he is creator He's the owner of everything. He's the sustainer. He's the sovereign ruler over all of creation. He doesn't need to be elected. He doesn't need to be appointed. He doesn't need to be affirmed. And the fact that he is God is not dependent on whether you believe him to be God. He doesn't need your affirmation. He just is God, period. And we must begin there. Jesus is God. Second thing we need to know about Jesus Jesus is human. Jesus is human. The most fascinating reality about this story is that Jesus is God, but he became human. In John chapter 1, verse 14, remember I, I told you I would kind of help you understand the way John is using this term word. In John chapter 1, verse 14, this is what it says. The word became human. And he made his home among us. And we are now able, because he is with us, we're able to see the glory of the one and only God who allowed him to come and be among us. The word, remember, 
already existed, was with God. The word was God. This word became human and made his home with us. This is a miracle. I mean, the fact that God, creator of everything, sustainer, owner, founder, sovereign ruler over everything that exists would stoop to our level. That he would actually take on flesh just like something he created to make his home among us. Jesus is God, but Jesus became human. We call this in in the church the incarnation. And it literally means God becoming flesh, becoming, becoming human. Right, if you've ever had anything con carne, that's with meat. We use the term incarnation to talk about the fact that God, as Tony Evans once said, unzipped the robe of divinity and zipped up the robe of humanity. He put our human flesh on his divinity and became one of us. This is amazing. There is no other God in the history of all religions in the world whose God becomes one of us. There are lots of religions that talk about one of us becoming God, but there are no other religions that talk about God putting on flesh to become like us, to save us, to redeem us, and to make us into who he wants us to be. Jesus is God, but Jesus became human. And if you're having a hard time understanding how that could happen, welcome to the club. It's a miracle. And miracles are hard to understand. They don't make rational sense. So I think sometimes when we hear incarnation, we think that Jesus was God and then he became human and he was no longer God, except that's not true. Because Jesus refers to himself over and over and over again, even during his earthly ministry, as the son of God. He he doesn't give up his divinity. He didn't get rid of it. He He didn't trade it in. He remained fully God. And yet, he was also fully human. Some of us think 50% God, 50% human, like a good half and half. No. He was always in every situation and in every circumstance 100% God and 100% human. And if you're having a harder time understanding now that I've given you that explanation, welcome to the club. It's a mystery. It doesn't doesn't fit in our rational categories because Jesus doesn't fit in the category. That's part of what makes him God. we We can't get it into a box that we can understand and move around wherever we want it to be. He is so much bigger, so much greater than we could ever comprehend or understand, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God, and he becomes human. He's fully human. 
Now, this idea of the incarnation, it's hard for us to understand, but it's really important for us to try to understand it. And I love the way Philip Yancey talks about his coming to understand better what the incarnation is. There's an old book that's been around for a while now called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in the middle of this book, Philip Yancey talks about this. He talks about how the incarnation for him began to kind of make sense. He said that in his apartment, he kept a saltwater aquarium. And he said that that saltwater aquarium was a great thing for him to see. He lived in a big city and he said it was nice to kind of, after looking at the concrete jungle that he lived in, to be able to kind of just look over in his family room and, and see this fish tank and kind of get a little bit of nature in this big city. But he said the saltwater aquarium, it took a lot more work than he thought it was going to take. He was always having to measure the, the balances in the water. He was always trying to figure out, is this, is this environment good enough for the fish? Are they going to live? Are they going to survive? And, and he had to feed them, and he had to take care of them. And from time to time, he had to clean out the tank. And, and, and it was just a lot of work. And he, he was kind of thinking about all of the work that it was taking to provide this environment for these fish to live in. And, 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 and one day, he kind of got upset at his fish. Because he said, every time I go near the tank, they, they dart for cover. Don't they know that I love them? Don't they know that I care about them? Don't they know that all of this work that I do, even when sometimes I have to reach into the tank and pull them out and empty the water and reset the tank so that it, it continues to be a clean, thriving environment for these fish, don't they know that even those disruptions that are hard and maybe painful or difficult for them are actually for their good? Don't they know three times a day when I open the lid of that tank to drop food in that I'm not trying to be mean, I'm not trying to be hurtful, I'm trying to help them. And yet they only know one emotion when I come near. They only know fear. And then Philip Yancey says this, and I want to read it right out of his book and, and the words that he wrote. He said, I learned about the incarnation when I kept this saltwater aquarium. Management of this aquarium was no easy task. You would think in view of all of the energy expended on their behalf that my fish would at least be grateful. Not so. Every time my shadow loomed above the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only, the emotion of fear. And then he says this, to my fish, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions, too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing they viewed as destruction. To change their perceptions, I began to see would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish and speak to them in a language that they could understand. Now he goes on to talk about how silly it is to think about a human being becoming a fish, to live in a fish tank, just to let his fish know that he really loves them. And then he says this, a human being becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a baby. And yet according to the gospels, that is what happened at Bethlehem. The God who created matter took shape within it 
as an artist might become a spot on a painting or a playwright, a character within his own play, God wrote a story only using real characters on the pages of real history. The word became flesh. Jesus is God. Jesus became human, which leads me to the third truth and the big truth for today. Jesus is humble. Jesus is humble. When you recognize, when you start with a high view of Jesus as being divine, fully God, and you recognize that he lowered himself to become a baby, he didn't stay outside of the fish tank. He became a fish and got right in the tank with us. There's no other way to conceive of that reality of this God becoming human without recognizing that Jesus is humble. Paul, a leader in the early days after Jesus' death and resurrection, he actually picks up on this and he writes about it in a letter to the church at Philippi. And, and, and the words that he writes are actually words that are out of one of the earliest known hymns of the church. These were lyrics to a hymn. And he, he writes about the, this doctrine of Jesus becoming flesh to redeem us, to save us, to set us free. And I want you to see what he says. The words are gonna be on the screen. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, he didn't say, you know what, I'm God and I'm just going to stay up here. He actually recognized, yes, I am God, but I am going to willingly let go of my right to stay where I am so that I can enter the reality of earth. And you see it in this verse. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Jesus is God. Jesus became human, which means Jesus is humble. As I've thought about that reality, I don't have any problem at all acknowledging that. But what I've been thinking a lot about these last few weeks is why? I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus is God. Jesus became human. He must be a humble guy. But, but why? Why did he humble himself? What was the, the, the driving purpose behind it? Because it's, it's not enough just to acknowledge what is true about Jesus. We have to go beyond that to say, why did he do what he did? Why is he the way he is? Because I think that's where the real gold is. And as I've thought about that, there are lots of things that have come to mind. But I want to give you three as quickly as I can this morning. First, Jesus humbled himself to identify with us. He humbled himself to identify with us. If I were God, I might write the story a different way. I mean, I might just come to earth as God. Like, forget the human flesh part. Just like show up and just tell people, 
here I am. Right? But, but that's not how he does it. He actually, when he comes to this earth, he decides to be born like every single one of us were born. Jesus has a mom. And you do too. You wouldn't be here without one. You don't just show up. And Jesus didn't either. Jesus was born just like you and I were born. And I think it was Martin Luther who said, you don't know anything about the incarnation until you've knelt close enough to the manger to smell the dirty diapers of the Christ child. Because Jesus had dirty diapers. Because he was fully human. He did that to identify with us. He wants to know what it's like to be us. And if you don't believe me, you can look at what Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter two, this is what the writer says. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. The writer of Hebrews continues on, and in chapter four, this is what he says. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Some of you are facing struggle in your life. You're facing temptation. You're facing challenge. Some of you are dealing with addictions, things that are holding you captive and holding you down. And you wonder, is there anybody who understands? I just want you to know, Jesus understands. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't enter into all of the realities that we tend to get ourselves into as human beings, but he faced all of the same kind of testings that we face. He did that to identify with us. He did that to identify with us. We do not serve a God who stayed outside of the fish tank as some far off deity who doesn't want to be known and who doesn't want to draw close to us. No, we serve a God who became a fish and got in the tank so that we would know that he loves us. Jesus humbled himself to identify with us. Second, Jesus humbled himself to set us free. He humbled himself to set us free. Here's the reality. There is an enemy of our souls. And his mission is very clear. And Jesus tells us what his mission is. In John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There's an enemy of your soul. And all that enemy wants to do is hold you captive and keep you from becoming everything that God wants you to be in this world. That's his mission. That's his job. That's all he spends his time thinking about. How do I keep you from becoming who God intends for you to be? And all he wants to do is rob you from the joy and the fulfillment and the meaning and the purpose that God has for your life. That's his, that's his mission. 
But Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come so that you can have life and you can have it to the full. In other words, I've come to to help you experience everything that I have ever dreamed for you to experience. The mission of the enemy is clear and the mission of Jesus is clear. Jesus humbled himself as God becomes human. Why? To set us free. Going back to Hebrews chapter two, this is what it says. We just read this verse, but I wanna read that verse again and the verse right after it. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also becomes flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Why? Did Jesus humble himself? He did it to identify with us, to be tempted and tested just like we are in every way, to know our weaknesses and, and, to, and to become like us and to identify with us. But he also humbled himself to set us free. He actually came and lived as one of us, not, not to reign from a throne, not to set up a government and, and have an army that could control the world. No, Jesus comes to lay his life down because he knows by laying his life down as a flesh and blood human being, he could set us free. And he thought that was worth it. Third thing that I think speaks to the why. Why did Jesus humble himself? Jesus humbled himself because He's searching for us. He's searching for us. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus himself says, the son of man, speaking of himself, has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, if you've been around the church, maybe you were around the church and, and then you know the church did something and, and, and made you not like the church anymore, or maybe you've just been around the church a long time and when you hear the term the, the lost, it, it kind of maybe rubs you the wrong way. I get it because for a long time in the church when we talk about the lost, it's almost kind of has like a condemnation to it. Like and if you've been around, you know, like fire and brimstone preaching, which I hope, I hope you're not around that now. I, that's not my intent ever to be that kind of preacher but, it, but if you were ever around fire and brimstone preaching, you, you kind of heard the lost as you're lost and you're going to hell. And it feels like a finger pointed at you when you maybe recognize that you're the lost. But, but when I lose something and I'm looking for it, it's not because I'm mad at it. And it's not because I want to throw it in the trash or push it out of my presence or never see it again or condemn it in any way. I'm searching for it because I love it. Right? If I can't find my phone, something is wrong with the world. I got to find it. I need to know where it's at. And if you've ever been a parent and your kid walked away from you in the store, and for that moment, you didn't know where they were. 
Saying your kid was lost wasn't a statement of condemnation. It was a statement of, I value you, I treasure you, and I'm going to look for you until I find you. Because all I want right now is to just be reunited. So when you hear Jesus say, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, I don't want you to hear in any of that any bit of condemnation because if you do, you're not hearing the words of the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus doesn't have anything but love for lost people. Not anything but love for people who have gone astray. They're the people he spent a lot of time with. They're the reason he came. He came to search for us. That's why Paul, when he writes about this in another letter in the New Testament, says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's all about love. It's all about love. In fact, the humility of Jesus, if we really get down to answering why did Jesus humble himself, Jesus humbled himself because he was driven by this overwhelming, never-ending, almost reckless love of God. In 1 John chapter 4, we read another couple of verses about God's love. And this is what John writes. He says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And that phrase eternal life doesn't just mean life after you die. It actually means life of the ages. It's that full and abundant life that Jesus came to bring here and now that will last forever. That's why God sent his son so you could experience that. He says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, God loves us. It drives everything that he is and everything that he does. I talked about the fact that Jesus doesn't have anything but love for lost people, for, for sinners, for people who are far away from God. And there was a moment in Jesus' ministry when some religious leaders came to him and they said to him, why are you always hanging out with sinners? You're always with them. You even eat with them. And eating in Jesus' day was a sign of deep intimacy and closeness. It was a way that you really welcome someone into your relational network. And Jesus was accused not just of hanging out with them, but of actually eating with them. You let sinners into the inner circle. And in response, Jesus doesn't give an answer. He just tells stories. The passage is Luke 15, and it's the only time in Jesus' recorded ministry in the Bible where he tells three stories Back to back to back, all the stories are different, but they all have the same exact point. He tells a story first about a lost sheep. There's a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and he brings 99 of the sheep safe into the fold, and they're all there. He counts them and recognizes one is, is lost. And he doesn't say, 
99%'s a pretty good retention rate. Oh, the shepherd says, I gotta go find the one that's lost. He leaves the 99 and he goes and he finds the one that's lost. And when he brings that sheep back, there's great rejoicing because the one who's lost has been found. He tells a story about a woman with 10 coins and she loses a coin. Now she's got nine coins and she doesn't say nine out of 10 is not bad. No, she sweeps her entire house to find the lost coin. And when she finds the lost coin, she calls her friends and they have a party because they found the coin that was missing. Then he tells the story about the prodigal son. Father has two sons. The youngest son says to his father, I wish you were dead. In fact, can we pretend that you're dead so I can go ahead and get my inheritance from you? And the father actually says, let's do that. He goes ahead and gives the inheritance due to the youngest son. The youngest son takes that money, goes to a far off land, searches for pleasure, fulfillment, spends his money on whatever his heart desires until he completely runs out and finds himself at rock bottom. In fact, he finds himself feeding pigs, which for a Jewish boy is not where you want to find yourself. And he recognizes everything he wants, everything he needs can only be found in his father's house. And he says, I'm not even going to go back there to be a son. I'm just going to go back there and be a slave because that will be better than the life I'm living right now. And he goes back home and, and the passage says that even while he was still a long way off, the father who is constantly scanning the horizon to look for any sign that his son is coming home, sees that his son is returning. And that father runs to meet his son on the road. And he brings his son back into the house. He says, you're not gonna be a slave, you're my son. And he throws a party and they celebrate, why? Because the one that was lost has now been found. Jesus' humility, God becoming flesh to dwell among us, to set us free, to identify with us, to search for us is all driven by this overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I've asked the band to sing a song over us this morning. And after they sing this song, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna close our time in prayer. But here's the thing. Some of you are here, you're walking in a relationship with Jesus, but you just need to be reminded today that Jesus became human for you. And you need to reconnect your heart with the love of God. And as you hear the words of this song, you might even wanna sing along and I would encourage you to do that. But I want you to just let any thoughts of God's love for you to turn into praise and thanksgiving that you give back to him. But some of you are here today and you don't know what it means to live in relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never experienced that or maybe you experienced it a long time ago and you walked away and today as you hear this song, I just want you to hear the truth that God loves you and that he would do whatever he needs to do to find you. So as the band sings this song for us, for those of you who are walking with Jesus, I want you to give him praise and thanksgiving for his love. And for those of you who aren't, I want you to know Jesus 
loves you. So Father, as the band sings this song, would you speak to our hearts? We are listening for your voice right now. Amen. As we close this service, I'm gonna pray and I wanna ask everybody just to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment of prayer. Before we pray, I wanna just give an opportunity for anybody in this room who coming into this room today, you weren't walking in a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you have in the past, but you've walked away from that. Or maybe you're, you're here and you're just learning about Jesus for the very first time. But, but this morning, something stirred in your heart and you just recognize God loves me. God wants to be reunited with me. And this morning, I want to just say I'm in, that I want to be found that I want him to do his work in my life to redeem me, to restore me, and to bring me back into his family. And you know what? He's like that father, always scanning the horizon. And if you just look to him in this moment, he will run to meet you right where you are. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to get things right in your life. You just let the father run to you where you are, meet you in that place and he will save you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will change your life and he will do whatever needs to be done inside of you. That's his commitment to you. And if that's you today and you say, I wanna receive that, I wanna be found, I wanna pursue that relationship, all I want you to do right now is just, just raise your hand right where you're at. I'm not gonna embarrass you, I'm not gonna call you forward, I'm not gonna call you out in any way. I see that hand. Anybody else, just lift it up high. I'm not gonna embarrass you, I promise. Anybody else? Just raise that hand. I see that hand. Anybody else? For those of you who raised your hand, I'm just going to pray a prayer. and I just want you to pray this prayer in your heart. You can just say it after me if you want to. You can say it out loud or say it silently. God will hear either way. But I want you to pray this prayer. God, thank you for loving me. God, thank you for sending Jesus to this earth. And Jesus, thank you for coming. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Jesus, thank you for loving me enough to set me free. I put my trust in you today. I put my faith in you today. Jesus, I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Jesus, I want to be found by you today. And I want to be reunited with you. So thank you in this moment, Jesus, for welcoming me back into the family of God and for giving me the right to be called a child of God in this moment. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I thank you. Jesus, I commit to follow you from this day forward. God, I pray for these who have prayed that prayer, whether they raised their hands or didn't. You heard every prayer prayed in this room. And God, I pray right now that you would meet every person right where we are, that you would just pour out your love on us today, that you would embrace us, that you would draw us close. And God, as we walk through the week in front of us, as we remember what Jesus has done for us, would you 
make that story come more and more real to us this week. And may we find our hearts and our lives just being full of thanksgiving and praise to the God who became human, who humbled himself to identify with us, to set us free, and to search for us. And for all that you do, God, we're going to give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church, would you just give God thanks for those who gave their hearts to Christ this morning? I want to invite you to stand this morning. As we go from this place today, I want you to go knowing that God loves you. And I want you to go today in the love of God, knowing that you have been loved by God, you are loved by God, and he wants you to experience that love, to live in that love, and to show that love to everyone around you. So go today in his love. You are sent out.